everyone, and welcome to the first Private Equity Power Talks podcast of 2021. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. The topic of this podcast is one of the most important we have covered as we set our sights on environmental, social and governance, something that will have moved from a discussion point into an action point for many business leaders. We're joined by Kerin James, CEO of ERM, a global provider of environmental, social and sustainability related consulting services. Kerin discusses the fallout of the COVID crisis and how environmental and social resilience is viewed by private equity and in turn the likely effect it will have on their selection process when looking for new investments. She also encourages business leaders to view ESG as a method to create value rather than just mitigate risk, providing examples of how to implement your own ESG programmes. The COVID crisis has raised a clear opportunity to take action and focus on something that not only drives value and culture within your business, but will also have a long-lasting positive effect on your social and environmental impact. Now, over to Sam and Kerin. Okay, we're joined today this foggy December morning by Karen James. Um, Karen is the CEO of ERM, which is a sustainability consulting firm, one of the largest in the world, actually. Uh, And they provide services around environmental health, safety and social issues to blue chip corporate companies and governments. Business uh, employs over 5,000 people in 40 countries. Not only are we really interested in this subject area, but also Karen is private equity backed. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And on multiple occasions, I think you're on your fourth. Fourth turn, yes. Fourth that's turn. Um, but you've been in with the business for 25 years. Plus, yes. 25 years plus. <laughs> uh, so you've, you've, you've ridden the private equity wave from the outset. I think it was 3i, wasn't it? The first investor back in... 2001. The- 2001. Yeah. Wow. 19 yeah. years of private equity ownership. Now backed by OMA's private equity and AIMCO, Alberta Investment Management Group, uh, who bought the business from Charterhouse Capital in 2015 for a rather large number, which I won't quote. <laughs> <laughs> but we know that the business has done really well over the last five years, and not surprisingly, because because of the services that you provide. And we're going to talk about that more in a second. Uh, the other thing to note is Karen was appointed as Vice Chair of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, which is a global CEO-led organisation of over 200 uh, leading businesses working together to accelerate the transition to a sustainable world, which we'll point you in the direction of at the end of the podcast in terms of the website, because I've been uh, having a very close look at it on the train on the way up, and it's it's a great source of, of information and how-tos to CEOs. So thanks for joining us, Karen. It's my pleasure. Lovely to see you. Yeah. It's actually lovely to see you face to face, actually, actually, because we haven't actually, we haven't actually seen you <laughs> since about March, I don't Other think. Other than so, digitally, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think what I wanted to cover in this uh, podcast was to try and um, bring ESG right up the priority list in terms of our members' focus. And I and I think, you know, um, we talked about doing this back in the sort of late summer and autumn, really because it felt like the world was was changing. I think we're at a pivot point, aren't we? Um, which could be an incredible change, an incredible period of positive change a renaissance almost in human society, or it could be a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're, we're in a fork in the road. Um, so we wanted to 
to cover this subject area and who better to talk to than mm-hmm. than than the CEO of one of the world's best firms in this space. So, I mean, my first my first question really is, um, you know, how how do you think this pandemic has changed our focus on environmental and social governments uh, in terms of business leaders? Look, I think, um, you know, one of the things that COVID has done, um, I mean, in essence, COVID, you know, is is a massive systemic shock, you know, a, a sort of a, a white swan or a grey rhino or or something of, of that effect. And, you know, it is it is something that um, people knew could happen. Um, but by and large, people have largely underestimated not the consequences of something like a pandemic, but certainly underestimated the likelihood that something like this could happen. Um, And as a consequence of that, many, many companies around the world were effectively ill-prepared to deal with it. Uh, And, you know, as you, most people on this, you know, podcast would be well aware that one of the things that we've done with businesses over the last, you know, sort of three, four decades is we've, completely ramped up the efficiency. Um, So businesses operate on a very tight, just-in-time mentality. And the reality is that when a shock hits, like a pandemic, um, there's no slack in the system. Um, And many businesses have proven to be significantly lacking in resiliency through the period because there's just no slack in the system. You've got no, you know, there's no movement in the system. Um, And so I think one, you know, COVID has really exposed, I think, um, the fact that many, many businesses around the world weren't resilient. And and I think there's a few things that play into that. One of which is uh, the fact that those businesses by and large had not adequately considered ESG in their business decision-making processes. They hadn't adequately considered it in the way in which they looked at risks and risk management. They hadn't adequately considered um, it in terms of how they thought about their human and social capital um, and and the need to protect that or when clearly when something like a, a pandemic comes along. So, so what's been quite remarkable, I think, even for me, um, and you know, I've been working in and around this subject matter for you know most of my career, and certainly ERM, which turns fifty next year, has been involved in this subject for fifty years, and it is remarkable to me how much this topic has gained traction and um, has accelerated. And I think that's something that COVID has done. I mean, COVID has accelerated trends that were already there, whether it's digital, but including ESG. Mm. Um, And the level of focus that we're now seeing on this from corporates and and the business um, uh, world, from investors in particular, uh, including private equity, um, but also the banks uh, and the large asset managers and the pension funds, and also consumers, um, you know, who are now saying, you know, our world is not sustainable, this is not good enough. Um, and, you know, in the context of a much broader concern around the climate emergency, um, you know, I think COVID has just really accelerated and amplified people's concerns about the sustainability of the planet. Uh, and I think a greater recognition of the interdependence that we have with nature 
um, and the fact that for too long we have taken that for granted uh, and we now have a very short period of time you know within which to turn the tide I was actually on a call yesterday uh, where um, David King from the University of Cambridge was sharing some of the latest science in terms of the melting of the polar ice caps etc it was actually quite daunting. And, you know, we certainly at this point in time are not on track to achieve a one and a half degree scenario, which is what we've set out in the Paris Agreement. Um, and so therefore, you know, COVID, I think, has been a wake up call for everybody. I think to your point, Sam, will people see it as a wake up call? Will people actually realise that this is not necessarily just about the impact their business has on the environment, but the but the impact that a changing stressed planet is going to have on their business, mm. um, which I think is, is should be one of the biggest concerns for private equity, frankly, um, in terms of understanding how that change is going to impact their business. And I think some, some businesses are really very alert to that and have responded very quickly. And others, um, I think, are just waiting for things to go back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, in the last, this isn't a subject that's new. I mean, since I graduated from uh, from school university as a geographer and a biologist. I mean, climate change was on the radar all the way back then, 20 odd years ago. So, I mean, I think I think governments and corporates have looked at it as as tomorrow's problem. Yeah. Whereas whereas hopefully now what's happened with with what's happened this year with the global pandemic is the realization that um, we have to invest in in building our resilience. Yep. You know, it's quite it's quite interesting that we'll all insure our house every every year, hoping that we'll never need to call in on that insurance. We're quite happy to do that, mm. but we feel very um, nervous about putting much more of our taxable income into investing in you know environmental issues, shoring up our society resilience to climate change, uh, and, and also healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so ho- hopefully, we're now at a moment where we can recognise that that's. That's something that we really got to be doing. Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, I see, I think, you know, over the last five, 10 years, we've seen far greater movement um, from within the private corporate sector on issues of sustainability um, than we have certainly from government uh, and certainly also, I think, from the finance sector. But in the last 12 months, I think we've seen a huge amount of change. I mean, first and foremost, from a government policy point of view, all of a sudden you have China committing to net zero by 2060, Korea, Japan, the UK committing to net zero by 2050. Um, You know, with a Biden administration, the US will go back into the Paris Agreement. Um, And obviously the European um, Parliament has recently, um, you know, committed to, you know, what is a very significant um, sort of shift in terms of its kind of green taxonomy, if you like, around uh, financial investments. So there's some very now, you know, sort of material sort of movements being made by government. Um, and in the absence of strong government policy and a price on carbon and, and appropriate policy in that area, it's difficult for businesses to make the decision to invest um, in you know, newer technologies, et cetera. But with stronger government policy in place, uh, I think that will move the needle. So that's a key part. The second thing I think is from an investment point of view, from a financial point of view, the movement that's being made by um, the institutional investors, um, by the banks, uh, and, and even, in fact, by private equity, 
you know, for those in leadership positions, we've seen quite extraordinary change over the last 12 months and, you know, very much, you know, I think pushed and sort of nurtured by the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure, which Michael Bloomberg and the former governor of the Bank of England, um, uh, Mark Carney, had uh, developed, you know, that has now, Rishi Sunak came out about two weeks ago and said that will now be mandatory for any bank, financial institution in the UK by 2025. That is not very far away. So that will require them to report on all of the climate related risks in their institutions, in their lending books, um, et cetera. So that is a very big deal. And it is my expectation that the TCFD will become mandatory in other jurisdictions right. or something like it. So those kinds of mm. um, those kinds of um, developments and initiatives, I think, are really going to be a game changer combined with government policy and combined with the already very strong commitment you see in leading corporations uh, mm. around the world. Plus, don't forget the youth. Um, yeah. You know, we have this incredibly strong movement, if you like, at the consumer level and particularly amongst young people, um, you know, who are demanding change. Yeah. So it is, you know, it is that the systemic policies are being built in. What is this going to mean to, you know, mid-market private equity back uh, portfolio companies? Well, I think it means two things, um, you know, and you sort of have to look at it, I think, from two different directions. One is what is it that they will invest in going forward? How will this change their investment decisions about what types of businesses to invest in? And then I think the second issue is how, how do you think about the risks and the opportunities uh, associated with the businesses that are already in their portfolios. So if we take the first subject first, which is what will they invest in? I think increasingly, and, and obviously we do a huge amount of work in this space, but um, the extent to which environmental, social and governance factors, ESG factors are now built into the due diligence process, I think will increase. I mean, in fact, we, we did a survey of um, private equity firms just recently and 77% of them said that in the next three to four years, they would expect that their demand for ESG due diligence would increase significantly. So that just kind of gives you an indication yeah. that at a due diligence level, people are recognizing that, um, you know, this helps you to have more resilient businesses. And so people are looking at that broad suite of issues, not just environmental liabilities, but the broader suite what of social issues. At? I mean, in human that rights chain. in the supply chain, for example, um, they would look at, you know, sort of other human capital issues, labor rights, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, employee turnover. So, you know, those social and human capital issues are really starting to come to the fore. What's their relationship with the communities that they're operating in? What's the reputation risk that they may be exposed to? Governance, um, you know, it's all around kind of how they're reporting um, compliance with regulations, um, you know, what representation do they have on the board? What are the board decision-making processes around the ESG? Is the board involved in those discussions? Are they aware of the issues, the risks, the opportunities? Uh, are they having input to that? Do you have appropriate diversity on the board? All those kinds of issues. So it's a much broader mm. set of considerations. The second piece, I think, is the more interesting piece as far as I'm concerned, which is 
I think increasingly private equity firms will look at sustainability and ESG as a source of value creation. Um, and, and the smart ones already are because they're effectively looking at businesses through the ESG lens and saying, how can I use this as an opportunity to create value rather than just manage my risk? So, you know, ESG is part risk management, but the flip side of risk management is opportunity. Um, and, you know, there is, you know, trillions of dollars of value available uh, for, for companies to invest in in order to achieve the sustainable development goals. So for me, it's both the how is my portfolio performing and do I understand the risks and opportunities in my portfolio? But I think it will also increasingly influence their investment decisions going forward. Yeah. I mean, give, give us some examples of, um, you know, maybe maybe some of the clients that you've ERM have worked with, where you've seen them embrace the change around ESG and use it to their advantage to, to sort of yeah. unlock some of those commercial opportunities. Yeah. So I think one of the one of the examples I would use, and it was for a a private equity firm um, with you know a significant number of portfolio companies, and they asked us to come in and assess the portfolio from a climate risk and opportunity perspective. So they wanted us to look across their entire portfolio uh, and understand how those businesses both contributed to emissions and therefore climate change, but most importantly, what were the risks associated with climate change? So extreme weather events, um, availability of raw materials, um, you know, issues in the supply chain or disruption to the supply chain? Um, and how could they turn some of those risks into opportunities? How could you create value from that? Mm -hmm. And what that requires you to do is, is to think about um, sort of risks and opportunities, if you like, you know, from a double materiality perspective. What's my risk to the environment and the society? And what's the risk of environment and society to me? And the businesses in my portfolio, and it's a different it's a different mindset, um, and and you have to go looking for for sources of value. Mm. Um, I think you know one of the other um, you know key areas I think is particularly amongst some of the energy companies, uh, you know where companies have wanted to understand uh, you know what their uh, climate risks are, in particular what's their you know, their, their carbon intensity of their businesses and then to have a strategy for decarbonizing that, but to use it as a source of competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we have clients working with us saying, how can I use green hydrogen to decarbonize my mining process? How can I use green hydrogen to, um, you know, ensure that I don't have a dependency on somebody else for my energy supply, for example. So there's just, there's, you know, it's quite, <clears throat> the change that is going on and the level of demand for different kinds of thinking about this is quite extraordinary to me that it's kind of all happened in the middle of COVID, um, mm. you know, and I guess that why do people do that, you know, Never waste a good crisis, as they say. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's it's a time where we've had more. Well, it's been a period where we've had more time for reflection. You know, yep. sitting around our uh, family kitchen tables, yep. listening to your show. I mean, we've done a lot of that. Listening yes. to my sort of 16, 15 year olds. Yeah, and, and really, what how they how they're sort of the lens that they see the world through. And I think this is a really big point actually when it comes to ESG. Is if 
you know, the next, you, you mentioned the Generation Z and the, the next generation of customers, employees, leadership. I mean, they're, they're all going to put this. Voters, of course. They're going to put these issues right at the top of the agenda. Yep. It's going to be number one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard some uh, some research recently that was done by one of the big consumer um, products companies, uh, and they'd looked at um, the different buying habits of the different generations. Um, and so you sort of had the baby boomer generation who don't even pretend to factor sustainability into their purchasing decisions. And then you probably had <clears throat> our generation who, who might pretend to factor them into their purchasing decisions, but don't always... Yeah. do that uh, and then you have um, you know the next generation of, of sort of 20 year olds who materially factor sustainability uh, you know elements into their decision making and their purchasing um, decisions on just about everything um, and and then the next generation which is the you know the generation of Greta Thunberg um, you know who are you know very proactively you know, building that into the way that they think about the world. And in those, it is those young people who will come of voting age in the next five years uh, and, you know, who in the next five to ten years will become, you know, material, you know, income earners uh, and will use that to kind of make their decisions both uh, in their daily purchasing decisions but also when they when they vote. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I guess I have great hope because of that. Um, you know, I mean, there are there are days where I have no hope. Uh, you know, when I see some of the things that that people do, but on other days I have great hope because I think that um, you know young people uh, very much see and worry and um, and are concerned with these issues. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it's not a, it's the right thing to do in terms of global society. It's the right thing to do in terms of environment. It's the right thing to do in terms of building a uh, more resilient business. Um, but it's also the right thing to do in terms of um, purpose, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it, private equity backed CEOs, we spent a lot of time this year talking about leadership and leadership qualities of a private equity backed CEO and, um, you know, instilling a, a a sense of purpose in a business is is a huge lever, mm. and I mean this is a no brainer, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> if you can't if you can't um, um, galvanise your employees around this subject, then it's unlikely you're going to find a better one. Yeah, look, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, even for an organisation like ERM, and you know, conceivably we've been doing this for fifty years. But it wasn't until 2016 that we actually explicitly articulated our purpose, which is shaping a sustainable future with the world's leading organisations. And it's quite interesting and quite extraordinary in some respects how galvanising, how coalescing, having a very clearly stated purpose is and how important it is from a, a talent attraction and retention perspective. Uh, and frankly, um, you know, how important it is from the perspective of um, consistency and branding, consistency in terms of how you make decisions, um, you know, consistency in terms of how you think and talk about the organisation. Now, you know, what I would say is that then having 
clearly articulated that purpose, you have to live it. Um, and, you know, that means that, uh, you, you know, your values need to be clearly tied into that sense of purpose. The decisions that you make have to be in line with that purpose. Um, you know, for example, whenever I do my, you know, staff town halls, which are all virtual these days, you know, inevitably I always get asked the question, um, if, 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 if our purpose is to shape a sustainable future with the world's leading organizations, why are we working for company X, which some people might perceive to yeah. be um, perhaps not in line with, um, you know, with that purpose. And so you have to be able to view all of your decisions in, in your business through that lens of um, what are we here to do? I mean, ERM is a, is a highly commercial you know, financially successful organization, um, you know, with that purpose at our center. And, you know, our financial success allows us to deliver on that purpose and vice versa. Our purpose allows us to be successful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you look at other very successful organizations like Unilever, for example, you know, who have a very clear purpose uh, and, and that is very much embedded into the way in which they think about their business model. Um, you know, that is something that I think is quite fundamental. And for me, um, I, I think it's very difficult not to have a clearly stated purpose, um, you know, in, in business today, because there is a war for talent out there. Uh, and if you are going to attract people to your organization, you have to have a clear sense of what it is that you're about. And we are very fortunate that our purpose is right, you know, right in the sweet spot of sustainability, um, and and I think you know we're very lucky that that's you know we've spent fifty years working on these these kinds of topics, and and therefore the people who come and work for us are very galvanised by yeah. that purpose. But I, you know, surely any every business out there, I mean, some of your sort of controversial yeah. clients, you know, yeah. any business out there can find a meaningful purpose around environment, envi the environment mm -hmm. and sustainability, um, social justice. Mm -hmm. I'm surely mm -hmm. we can all do that. Yeah, yeah. We don't yeah. have to look too hard. No. And I think, you know, the, I, I think the trick for most organisations and frankly, you know, something that is not that easy to do, but you can do it if you sort of sit down and think it through, is just how do you integrate that? into your business. If it's seen as something off to the side, you know, I'm going to have a CSR program or I'm going to have a philanthropic mm. program or I'm going to have a set of sustainability activities that are off to one side, then I think it doesn't it it won't work, you know, for to the to the extent that it should and it won't create value for the business if it's seen as something that's off to the side. It needs to be integrated and embedded into the way in which you run your business. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think the, the COVID pandemic, I think has actually been quite instrumental in allowing and enabling, I think a lot of companies to move from having it as almost a, a sort of a separate thing on the side, the thing that that CSO, that chief sustainability officer looks after, or, um, you know, that person in external affairs or, you know, kind of marketing looks after 
to something that I think is now being truly embedded. And, and I think a lot of that's got to do with the pressure that's coming from the finance institutions around climate risk in particular, because it's become the job of the CFO um, and the board. Um, and, and that has really changed the game. Mm. So how, how, how do we get started um, as, <laughs> you know, as, as, you know, business owners and leaders and, you know, we're, it, it, we're not a Unilever. We don't have the, those budgets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our members out there, I'm sure this issue is is right up there on the radar, but it may not be in the top five. I mean, just how, how what, what sort of steps can they take to start making a difference um, to their sustainability yeah. quickly? Yeah. So, you know, the the advice that we always have for, for clients is that it has to be something that makes sense for your business. Um, so it's not about adopting the same things that everybody else is doing. It's about understanding what are the risks and the opportunities for your business in the particular context that your business operates in. So we would encourage everybody uh, to start with something as simple as a materiality risk assessment, um, which is you know, a, a simple process of effectively sitting down and as a board and, and as an executive uh, team and saying, what are the material risks that could impact on my business? And what are the, the material risks or, or issues that I could create for the environment and society? Now, for some companies, those material risks will be carbon and emissions, for example. But for, for other businesses who are already, you know, who are either not high energy users or are not carbon intensive, the issues could be more to do with biodiversity loss, for example. It could be more to do with, um, you know, do I, uh, you know, is my supply chain robust and do I have good governance around my supply chain? Am I at risk of human rights you know, kind of breaches or labor rights breaches because I have a very um, extensive human supply chain. And so it's got to be very much in your context. What are the, the material risks and issues for your business and opportunities? Very important to think about the opportunity side of this as well as the risk uh, side of it. And then I think it's a question of having identified what you believe are the most material risks and opportunities is then honing in on those and saying, what are the actions that I can take either to mitigate those risks and or to develop the opportunities? So our recommendation is that people don't try and tackle everything. Mm. Um, if you try and tackle every single sustainability issue that's out there and try and address each one of the, the 17 sustainable development goals, you'll get nowhere very quickly. So it really is about identifying those that are relevant to you and relevant to your context, um, and then developing plans for the most important ones of those and, and, and prioritize them. The, the other, I think, sort of where to start question often comes up in relation to climate change and climate risks. And uh, one of the things, again, that we would always advise clients here is to start with scenario analysis. So rather than, oh gosh, we've got to go and model, you know, kind of all of these different types of things, is to sit down as a board, as an executive, and try and understand what scenarios could potentially impact our business. Do we want to look at extreme weather events? Do we think that's the most, 
you know, likely scenario that could impact our business in terms of climate risk? Do we want to think about policy change? Do we want to think about transition risk, um, you know, as the world moves from away from fossil fuels? Is that going to pose a significant risk? Could we get caught in a situation where our facilities and our assets are dependent on fossil fuels and we haven't made the transition in time uh, and therefore we'll end up with stranded assets, for example? So kind of working through scenarios in terms of what do we think is most likely and then modelling you know, a number of scenarios, but the most likely scenarios to then understand what do we think the issues and the impacts are. And that's that's relevant for private equity as well, um, but from a portfolio point of view. Yeah. You know, what, how do we think this would impact the portfolio? So materiality risk assessment and, you know, thinking about scenario analysis, I think, are the other ways to sort of think about it. Mm. Um, we actually wrote the guidance on how to do scenario analysis for the TCFD, for the Task Force on Climate-Related um, Financial Disclosure. So there's a really good kind of how-to guide there if people want to use that. Um, and uh, about two weeks ago, we also um, produced quite a useful document on you know, how to operationalize net zero um, for businesses, which um, I think is a, a very useful sort of practical you know, how to step through all the different components of that. But I think you've got to start at the top. You've got to start with the board. You've got to start with your executive um, and think about it from, you know, those risks and opportunities and then pick the ones, choose the ones, identify the ones that are particularly relevant to your business uh, and then then go from there. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm a sort of 100 million revenue business in the mid-market, we do. We sit down and we we look at that as a board, as an executive. But yep. then, in terms of the practicalities yep. of just personnel and operation, yep. and how do we start making some yep. of this change happen? What would what would your recommendation be there? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think, the the point where a lot of businesses are finding themselves today. Um, the board has made a commitment to net zero by 2050. Uh, and then um, they've uh, thrown it over the fence to um, the chief sustainability officer or the heads of the, the operations who are sort of scratching their heads and saying, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, I think it's a question of, um, you know, breaking it down into its component parts in terms of, okay, we have to be able to operationalize this. So what does it mean um, in terms of, um, you know, inputs, energy use, raw materials, et cetera. What does it mean in terms of how I change energy use in the different parts of my value chain? Um, you know, what does it mean in terms of uh, what needs to happen in the different parts of the organization? And very importantly, I think it's got to be embedded into the objectives um, and frankly, the incentives of key executives across the business. Um, and I think, again, if you look at organizations which have real leadership in the sustainability space, you will see these things reflected in their objectives and also in their compensation, um, including climate change. Uh, and so it climate needs, needs to be in the strategic plan for these? It needs to be in the strategic plan. So that's why I'm saying you've got to do it at a board level yeah. um, and it's got to be part of the business plan. Not It's not something separate. It's mm. got to be part of the business plan because change needs to be funded. Um, and if you're going to change, for example, your energy mix or your energy use, then you need to think about what are the costs and benefits associated with that. And very often it will require you to invest 
in order to change something and then there will be a return clearly on that investment like any other business decision there's an investment and then there's a return on the investment and i think you've got to embed it into the business strategy into the business plan and then you've got to cascade it down into the responsibilities of the various individuals through the organization and i think to your point about purpose you have to then build it from the bottom up in terms of um, you know, the awareness of the strategy, the culture of the organization, what it is that you're collectively trying to achieve. Okay. But well, it's I, not easy. No. It's not easy because it really, it, it is a whole of business, whole of business model, whole of business strategy mindset, which is why it's got to be owned by the CEO, the CFO, not by the mm -hmm. CSO who may be two or three steps down in you know in in the hierarchy of an organization and therefore don't have the power uh, and the influence in particular to make decisions about how investment how capital is deployed mm. and that's that's the key to this we have to change the way in which capital is deployed in order to get a different outcome yeah just one final question just to go back a few steps you um right at the beginning of the conversation you talked about um the way in which private equity will start um, due diligencing mm. uh, ESG policy. I mean, is that is that beginning to happen now? Yeah. Who, who's doing that? I mean, who who actually undertakes that due diligence? I mean, who's we do. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that I'm making a hard yeah. sell or anything, Sam. No. I mean, generally speaking, what we see these days is that most private equity firms, when they are doing a diligence either for a merger or an acquisition um, will require ESG due diligence of some form. We've been doing ESG due diligence for 10 years. At all levels of yeah. investment or just yeah. at the, the mega end? No, at all levels of investment. And I think for any, any firms that have been investing in emerging markets for a number of years, the S issues have always been pretty present yeah. in particular things like human rights um, if you're investing in businesses where there's been any kind of um, resettlement of communities you know that's been a factor for a long time i mean i i, I remember doing due diligence on social issues 25 years ago um, so it's not it's not necessarily a new thing mm. um, as i said we've been doing it for some time but probably not necessarily universally, whereas I think now, as I was saying earlier, we're starting to see it become a much more universal requirement. You know, it's, people won't come to you and say, can you just do an EDD? Inevitably, they'll come now and say, can you do, you know, ESG due diligence? I mean, we, we, we kind of offer that as a matter of course yeah. and sort of and the client and, and wait for the clients to come back and tell us not to do certain components as opposed to not, you know, only offering environmental. So for us, it's kind of, well, that's just what you would do, surely. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes we'll get clients saying, no, no, we only want to look at the environmental issues. But, uh, you know, we've got, unfortunately, a very long string of examples of work we've done historically where people have chosen not to look at the broader issues and it has come back to bite. Um, and there's just a lot of examples. So. I find these days most of the private equity firms we work for are looking for full ESG due diligence mm. um, uh, and, you know, really wanting to identify, um, you know, some of those less tangible reputation, you know, sort of social risks that um, may be harder to identify. Yeah. Okay, well, that's 
we're out of time. I think you've got to go. So <laughs> thanks so much for coming to talk to us about it today. Um, we will we will send li uh, links to uh, your um, website in terms of uh, accessing our, our listeners be able to access that how to get to net zero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the World Business Council for Sustainable Development's website, yeah. we'll send a link for that because there's some great, great CEO guides yeah, there as it's well. It's a great, um, the, the WBCSD site has a lot of really great materials on not just for CEOs, but including for CEOs on a whole raft of different issues, um, which, um, you know, are there and freely available to people to, you know, sort of use as, um, to build their knowledge and and you know, access tools. There's lots of great, it's very, the intent of the WBCSD is to build a lot of very practical tools, you know, as opposed to, you know, lots of um, sort of uh, high level um, stuff. It's intended to be practical. So I would encourage people yeah. to go there. And it's really good. I was reading on the train. Yeah, good. good. Very <laughs> pleased to hear Some it. of it. There's a lot more to read. <laughs> but thanks, Karen. Lovely to see you. And you as well. It was a pleasure to be here. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Private Equity Power Talks, Map of the Maze. Please subscribe for a new episode each month and share with anyone in your network you think may be interested. If you have any questions for us about Pep Talks membership or anything else, please email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. And thank you for listening.